Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is the FT's investment banking correspondent, Daniel Schaefer. And on the line, we have Charlene Goff, retail banking correspondent, and in Rome, our Italian correspondent, Guy Dinmore. First, today, we'll be looking at JP Morgan and Bank of America as regulators in the US push forward attempts to punish mortgage abuses in the crisis. Our second topic will be the Cooperative Bank, the UK lender whose bond restructuring looks to be in tumult. And finally, we'll take a look at the UBS story surrounding the former head of the group's global wealth management business, who's been dramatically arrested in Italy over the weekend. First to that story around JP Morgan and Bank of America. Daniel, you've been looking at this tale which essentially broke over the weekend when JP Morgan, I think late on Friday, agreed a deal, informally at least, to pay $13 billion to various agencies over these long-running mortgage abuses in the pre-crisis period. We've since discovered that Bank of America is in line to pay potentially an even higher sum in total. Certainly one of the key mortgage regulators, the FHFA, would get $6 billion we're told, rather than $4 billion under the JP Morgan settlement. So it could end up being a higher number in total, I suppose, as well. It's all fairly big numbers and big abuses, I guess, as well. Yeah, and it actually is quite a tough deal on JP Morgan. As you said, it was struck in high-level talks on Friday evening, at least a tentative deal. Firstly, it's $2 billion more than we'd expected. We thought it would be $11 billion. So they finally settled on $13 billion. And this is the highest single fine imposed on a company by US authorities ever. So that underlines the scale of it. And also, it is a tough deal for JP Morgan if the details which will emerge over the next few days are true that basically it will still leave open the possibility of criminal prosecution, which obviously is a big risk, although unlikely, but it's a big risk hanging over JP Morgan if that could still be a threat. And lastly, it's also tough on JP Morgan because it will include some admission of guilt by JP Morgan that could leave the bank liable to civil litigation by mortgage investors. So class action lawsuits, that kind of thing. You say tough on JP Morgan. Is it unfair on JP Morgan? Because I know JP would argue that it is because I think by their calculation, 80% of their business in this area and therefore presumably 80% of the fine relates to banks that they bought at the heat of the crisis, which they say they kind of essentially bailed out at the behest of the government, namely Washington Mutual and Bear Stearns. And if it hadn't been for that, then they wouldn't be owners of those businesses and therefore they wouldn't be fined for it. Is it unfair? 
I think actually that's what JP Morgan is saying, and I think there are some arguments. These arguments aren't stupid that JP Morgan is making. Firstly, for the very reason that you mentioned, that they bought Washington Mutual and Bear Stearns at the behest of the government, and so they essentially did the government a favor by bailing them out, and now they're liable for the past misdeeds of these institutions. And secondly, because they're saying that the regulatory strategy on these things has actually changed in the past five years. It's only now that five years after the crisis, that they're starting to deal with these legacy issues and suddenly becoming so strict on these things where they haven't done anything in 2009 or 2010. I suppose for anyone who says that part of the reason for that toughness now is that Jamie Dimon has been shouting his mouth off for too long should take a look at what's going to happen to Bank of America because as we're writing in Monday's paper they look to be next and as I mentioned in the introduction they could end up paying even more. Yeah. And for them, it's a similar issue in that they bought countrywide. Not at the behest of no, the that, No, that's the difference. But also the similarity is that both banks have bought other mortgage providers and investment banks that were embroiled in these issues. And it was the predecessor institutions that were responsible, mostly responsible, not not, not fully, but mostly responsible for what was done. I yes. suppose the argument there is that a new parent of any legacy business needs to take on the risks and Um, should have done proper diligence to spot it obviously that's what the authorities would say and maybe some investors even would say and this whole deal over the weekend and also the revelation of the six billion that the fhfa seeks from bofa shows the wider scale of these issues for the banking sector as a whole because there are still a number of institutions that will face maybe not as high fines but similar fines for past misdeeds in the mortgage market. Among them is Royal Bank of Scotland, which has a large notional exposure to the US mortgage market, but also other banks like Deutsche, Credit Suisse and HSBC. Well, this is going to be a long-running saga, I'm sure, but we'll keep watching it. Our second topic for the day is the Cooperative Bank, which has been trying for several months now to restructure its bonds in order to basically generate $1.5 billion of fresh capital. Over the weekend, that original proposal seems to have come undone. And Charlene Goff is on the line to talk about the new proposal. Yeah, exactly. There's been quite a change of direction from the co-op group that's come about in recent weeks as they've negotiated with bondholders, particularly real crunch talks over the weekend. And this was thrashed out quite late last night. And essentially, in new terms, would hand a majority stake of the cooperative bank to bondholders led by two U.S. hedge funds, but lots of other institutions in there as well. They would take the majority stake. The co-op group itself will continue to have a stake in the bank. In fact, it will be the biggest shareholder still, but it will be essentially relinquishing control to its creditors. So very interesting changes afoot for the co-op. So why did this deal have to be struck? What was wrong with the original one? Is this aggressive US hedge funds bullying the poor little cooperative? Well, actually, from all sides, we're hearing that the talks were very constructive. And actually, I think these hedge funds have made quite a fair case. I don't think it was just the fact that they went in there and aggressively bullied the co-op. The issue they had was that they did not want new bonds in the group because they were 
concerned that that would essentially crystallise a big loss for them, that they would never really be able to recoup. And it's quite unusual for bondholders to actually be pushing for equity because these were more senior-ranked investors than many others. And they wanted the equity because they see that as a way to preserve the upside and to recoup any loss in the future so they wouldn't have to take a big haircut on their debt. That was their negotiating point. And the co-op took that on board, and I think they made it clear to the board that they would not support any restructuring plan that would just give them new bonds. So just to rewind a little and explain this very complex story, the essential first proposal on the table was that the vast majority of these bondholders would be given debt in the co-op group to replace the co-op bank bonds that they had, but at a discount to par value potentially, I suppose, a slightly inflated price relative to market values. But what those bondholders, as you say, led by these few hedge funds, made clear was that they wouldn't have signed up to that arrangement. Yes, and actually they had quite a strong negotiating position because the way the creditor waterfall essentially works with different people in different ranks, they could have done serious damage to the very small pot of retail investors who only account for £60 million of the £1.3 of total debt. And the hedge funds, if they'd made co-ops stick to the rules of the so-called creditor waterfall, they could have wiped out those retail investors. And that's something that the co-op did not want to do for all sorts of reputational reasons. What does happen to those retail investors now? Because they have been protesting for months as well that they weren't happy with the original scheme because many of them would have got equity in the bank as opposed to the kind of bonds that these hedge funds would have got. Are they getting something different now as well? They could get quite a good deal out of this, actually. And I think that has been quite a critical point, definitely from the co-op side of things, They didn't want the stories of stripping income from these pensioners who've put their whole life savings into these bonds. For whatever reason, lots of these people were unaware of the risks. And I think the co-op's crucial aim through all of this has to be to strike a deal for these retail investors. And they feel that they have done that now. So rather than transfer them into equity, which these people really didn't want because they're reliant on this income. Yeah, many of them were pensioners who are reliant on bond coupons. With equity, they they wouldn't have got dividends because this bank is not profitable at the moment, not paying dividends. Exactly that. And I don't think they would have got anywhere close to what they're getting from the bonds anyway. So they were very anti that. The outcome, which we're likely to have confirmed in the next few days, will see retail investors getting a fairer deal than had been feared in June. They will get some new bonds, which will continue to pay income. Now, this isn't saying they're going to be completely protected. They will still face losses. However, the co-op group is also planning a compensation fund to help those that will be the worst affected. So a kind of hardship fund which will support other bondholders as well with finance. And that will be very much focused on people that could potentially face very significant financial hardship as a result of losing a proportion of their income. So the two initiatives together should mean that retail investors come out of this okay. A final word, Charlene, very briefly, if we can, on what this means for the co-op bank going forward. As you said, the current bondholders will end up as the majority shareholders. Co-op group will stay a shareholder, but it'll be a minority shareholder. What does that mean for the future of the co-op bank, its ethical brand and so on? 
Well, I think this is really interesting, and we're already getting lots of people saying, how can this institution possibly preserve its ethics and all the things it prides itself on, that it's fairer to customers, that it's fairer to its stakeholders? How can it preserve that, yet have two hedge funds and other institutions as a majority stakeholders? Now, interestingly, as part of the deal, they have reached an agreement to embed existing values, so they say, into the running of the bank. And they're saying they're going to make that legally watertight so hedge funds can't question that. They have to support that. So they cannot put too much pressure on the bank to purely go after shareholder returns. They have acknowledged and will have to acknowledge going forward that there are other considerations that the co-op group and the bank have to acknowledge. So we'll see how that plays out. I mean, it's a complete precedent. You've you've never had anything like this. And lots of people are saying this is going to be really tough for the co-op bank to pull off, given that it has now got to answer to institutional shareholders. Well, either way, it's the start of a new chapter for the co-op bank, by the sounds of it. Thanks very much for joining us, Charlene. Our third story for today is the tale of the former UBS executive, Raoul Weil. He was the global head of wealth management at UBS until five or six years ago. He has been dramatically arrested over the weekend in Bologna. Guy Dinmore, our correspondent in Rome, is on the line. Guy, what exactly happened? Well, it seems to have been almost by chance that he was arrested. There was this outstanding US warrant for his arrest. And initially, whenever you check into a hotel, you have to provide an ID when you register. And this is then supplied to the police. The police in Bologna, in northern Italy, discovered that he was on this international arrest warrant. They sent round their unit rapidly in the early hours of Saturday morning, so Friday night, and arrested him promptly in the hotel on charges from the U.S. authorities of aiding and abetting tax evasion by wealthy U.S. clients when he was running the fund at UBS. I'll just bring Daniel in for a second on this to give us the background on Mr. Viles' role at UBS and in that whole story. Daniel, going back to 2008, when Mr. Viles was last employed at the bank, what is the history of this whole saga at UBS? Basically, it started in 2008 when US authorities started to crack down on tax evasion by U.S. citizens through accounts from Swiss banks. It's a wide-ranging investigation across the sector, but UBS was the first prominent, maybe even the biggest sort of culprit in this whole saga. And they settled in 2008 by paying roughly 800 million U.S. dollar fine with the U.S. authorities and basically said they would stop these sort of accounts with U.S. citizens ever since. And Raoul Whale, he was the global head of wealth management at the time at UBS, so the most senior UBS wealth manager. So just to be clear, he's not necessarily personally caught up in any dodginess, but as part of the institution at the time, there is an arrest warrant out for his role in that. Yeah, it went out in 2009, and at the time his lawyer said it was totally unjustified, and he wasn't. So, Guy, as you say, it seems to have been by chance that he's been arrested now. Is the supposition that he's actually been holed up in Switzerland for the past five years in a country which doesn't have an extradition agreement with the US and therefore hasn't been at risk? Well, I'm not sure that hold up is the right word, really. We've just found out that, in fact, since 2010, he was working openly as a consultant for a Swiss-based company called Royce Private Group, a sort of asset manager for individuals and companies. And he was appointed the CEO this year, in fact. 
And when I spoke to the company, they said, yes, they knew about his judicial background, his problem with the U.S. authorities, but that he had been cleared by an investigation by the Swiss financial authorities, therefore was able to carry on his work in Switzerland. But it does seem that because he crossed the border into Italy and registered openly his name, that's why he got arrested. The company clearly didn't expect him to go on holiday. Well, they said he was on a private visit. They haven't elaborated on that, but they didn't seem to be aware that he was there, and they seem to have been very surprised by his arrest. Well, it's rather thrown his career there into doubt as well, but we will continue to pursue this story. It's a very colourful one, as you say, Guy. But thanks very much in the meantime for joining us. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Daniel and Charlene and Guy in Rome for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.